Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, thanks for being here. Today on the show, I am pleased to be sitting with writer George Saunders. You may know his work from books like 10th of December, Lincoln and the Bardo, Civil Warland, and Bad Decline. He has been a contributor to The New Yorker since 1992, a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant Fellowship, the Guggenheim Fellowship, the Man Booker Prize for Best Work in Fiction. He is, in my view one of our greatest living short story writers. I put him in the same conversation of folks like Grace Paley or Alice Monroe. But his new book is something a little different. It's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russian writers give a master class on writing, reading, and life. It's a collection born out of this course Saunders has been teaching at Syracuse University for 20 years now. It's a kind of coveted class that anyone who's ever wanted to write would love to take. And now, in some ways, you can. A sort of virtual workshop. Reading this book is like being transported back to the classroom, but in a good way. Like, you know, the one class and teacher you actually liked and looked forward to, that you were excited to learn from. As you're about to hear... There's a lot to learn from George Saunders. You know, he's fond of talking about art as a moral, ethical tool for investigation. But what I think often happens in reading his work is that you feel something for someone you do not know. Fictitious people that start to feel like the people in your life, funny and flawed, human, you enter his work in one state of mind and walk out on the other side, slightly changed. You feel more awake to the world around you, a little bit lighter. His touch, subtle but perceptible. My hope, and I know it's a big one, is that you have a similar experience by the end of this conversation. 
I know I did. George Saunders, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm staying busy uh, with this new book and keeping one eye on the news and just trying to let it all, you know, filter in for later, later arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> Does later arrangement mean later processing? Yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of how it is for me. I just take everything in like a little goldfish, you know, and then later it sorts itself out artistically, I hope. That's the theory. So it makes it kind of low stress because I don't really do a lot of deciding at the time. I'm just like, oh, this is crazy. And trying to get as much, you know, factuality in as possible. And hopefully it'll, it'll come out in some weird way six months from now or tw 20 years or whatever. Well, I think some of your processing of this country, at least, came out in the pages of The New Yorker last year. In this piece, you offered an explanation of the Trump era and the great harm that can be done by just a handful of powerful people, as long as they have the passive assistance of many, many other people who glance out of the windows of their secure homes and see a cloudless sky. Given the reckoning of these past few months in America, do you believe we're starting to look out those windows and, to use your term, really see that cloudy sky? It seems like it to me, uh, although it seemed like that for about four years. I've got a kind of a hopeful, you know, I'm a hopeful person. I'll tell you what strikes me about this, Sam, is I'm talking about this book now about stories. And that's pretty much what I think about all the time is a short story. And it occurs to me that if we ever had the idea that stories weren't important, this moment right now is, is proof that they are. Because when a shitty story is propagated and gets into a human mind, pretty soon the human body starts doing stupid stuff. And so, you know, in this time of ours where we've got these false narratives that are coming down this, you know, technological corporate pipeline into a bunch of heads that maybe aren't particularly sophisticated at processing story truth. I don't know. When I was watching that, the films of the, the Capitol thing, it just reminded me of that, uh, whatever that Brad Pitt movie is with Z in it, you know, the zombie movie. Just a bunch of people who were literally infected with something, in this case, a stupid idea. And it's really tragic, you know, to see people who, had they been encoded with more reliable, good-hearted information, they wouldn't have been there doing that stuff. So then that brings me to thinking about the short story and how that's a, an information conveyance device of a different type uh, with a different agenda and a different delivery system that lands on an audience of people who've been better prepared to hear what it has to offer. You've been thinking about the short story for a long time. And in fact... For people who don't know, you have been teaching this course on the 19th century Russian short story at Syracuse for 20 years. Um, but I think, you know, in this new book of yours, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, it's important to note the context that I think it arrives in, uh, which is, as you write, we live, as you may have noticed, in a degraded era, bombarded by facile shallow, agenda-laced, too rapidly disseminated information bursts. Since this book is coming out now, do you think it exists in opposition to that degraded era? I don't know if the book does, but the stories do. This, you know, the stories in it definitely do. Um, why? Well, if you think about the mindset of, say, Chekhov, you know, when he was writing these his stories, I think he understood the story to be a a moral ethical investigation tool. And any writer, you know, you go into a story, part of your job is to surprise yourself, surprise the, the reader and to be truthful, whatever that means to you. So in that mode, you know, you're kind of a human being at its best. You, you don't know the answer. You're hopefully asking a, a, a deep question and you're kind of waiting in with all your senses open. You're, you're in a spirit of, of, intimate communication, intimate conversation with the reader. You're trying to connect with her at her highest level. You're trying to bring forth your best self. So that that is the opposite of what I'm talking about, a uh, um, facile, uh, agenda-laced conversation. There's, there isn't really an agenda when you're writing a story, except, you know, you'd like to get it published. 
But for that to happen, you have to be there. You know, you have to really um, engage the, the reader in a loving way. So I think it is very different. You know, it's, it, to my way of thinking, of course, I'm biased, but I think that an eight or nine page story that I write and send to you is about the most mind meld you can get. You know, that's about the best mind meld we can accomplish because prose is so, so powerful. So I'm a, you know, obviously I'm, a, I'm kind of a, a fan of the story, but I think somehow our communication has gotten shrill and agitated and uh, cynical. And it's, it can't be unrelated to the means of delivery. You know, it, it can't be. How do you combat that cynicism? Honestly, you know, at this point in my life, at 62, I just feel like you do it a little bit every day for yourself at a time. I don't think there's any big program that can fix it. It's just like everything else good in life, you know, like friendship or food or sports. You know, you, you, you are always mitigating against the evils in the world with whatever, you know, tools you have. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know, it's an answer. I'm always a little bummed out by that because I have a messiah complex and I'd, li- <laughs> I'd like to do more. But really, that's it. You know, I mean, it, it, with everything in life, you don't get to press the button that says evil be gone. You have to press a bunch of little buttons and evil goes around the corner and it comes back, you know. So, I mean, one of the things I kind of discovered from the book was that when you really, when I really get down to it and ask, why would someone read a short story or write one? It's all about the micro fluctuations of the mind. You know, you, you start a story with nothing in mind, you pick it up and suddenly there's Scrooge or whoever, you know. And then when you come out, when you get spit out the other end of a good story, you're in a different state, you know. And the same is true of a song or a, a whatever. You're in a different state. If you think that different state is preferable, then that's proof of concept, you know. It, it doesn't last forever. It lasts, you know, maybe, what, half an hour? I don't know. But it's, I, I kind of feel like at this stage of my life, I'm like, well, that's better than nothing. You know, it's better than not. Can we go to a moment in your life where you had that kind of transformative experience where you did pass into a different state, that you were so impacted by the writing? Because... This book includes Chekhov, and I think your love for his work began at the end of your first semester at the Syracuse Creative Writing Program. It was December of 1986. Your professor and mentor and writer, Tobias Wolf, is doing a reading of Chekhov's About Love trilogy on stage. Do you remember that night? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, um, I think it was the first time we'd heard Toby, as we call him, uh, read. And so it was like we were all starstruck. And I think he was a little under the weather, so he decided to read Chekhov's work instead of his own. And as I remember it, you know, the first snow of the season started falling behind him in this big window. And it was just such an unbelievably entertaining reading. It was so funny and personable and lively. And I had never understood Chekhov to be an entertainer before. I couldn't really get into him. But with Toby, it was really like Chekhov himself had kind of dropped into the room and was doing stand-up. And then it would be funny, but also it'd be so deep and sad. And so for me, it was kind of this moment where I was like, okay, that's what I'm doing with my life. I, I was pretty sure, but I had some doubts, you know, and it was seemed like the coolest thing you could ever do. So there was that feeling like, okay, anything I ever wanted to accomplish artistically, this is a, this is a good way to do it. And then, you know, the related kind of sickening feeling, which is, holy shit, this is hard. This is <laughs> what, what Chekhov and Toby just did. That is not baby stuff, you know. So that was a big, a really big deal, you know, very inspiring. And, um, you know, it's, it's not too often, I guess, in your life that you get those moments where everything gets simplified, you know, and all your desires and aspirations get kind of combined into one thing. And that was definitely that night, night for me. You wrote that the stories and Toby's reading of them convey a notion new to me, or one which, in the somber cathedral of academia, I'd forgotten. Literature is a form of fondness for life. It is love for life taking verbal form. Yeah. This idea that literature is a form of fondness for life seems to me, and again, I could be wrong because this is your life, not mine, but (laughs) I think, I think this began in 1973 where you're a freshman at Oak Forest High School in Illinois. There you had a teacher named Sherry Williams. And one afternoon, the class was studying Hawthorne. And she started to go on about him. And she said, this is a person who is now dead. But when he was alive, he went out and looked at the world with wide open eyes and in the process 
changed it. How did her words that afternoon change you at that age? Can I just say parenthetically, you're a monster researcher. That's amazing what you just found there. Uh, yeah, well, okay, so so Sherry Williams was very beautiful and very smart and very funny, and we all admired her. And she had a way of talking about teaching writing that I know I've adapted, which is to say these were people. They weren't, you know, saints. They, they, they weren't statues. They were actually human beings like you guys. And even though you guys are from Oak Forest, Illinois, and it's 1973, and you're all Ted Nugent fans, you, you are still capable of getting it behind the story and feeling it. You are. And I'm going to show you how to do it, you know. So with her personal charm and her intelligence, she made it seem that we were smart enough to handle this stuff. Ever since, I just, I kind of always think of her when I go into the classroom because it's not your job to show off or to preach or to discipline even. Your job is to engage, you know. And, and the way you engage with this, a class is to like them you know, and to have faith in them. I had another colleague once tell me that the way to connect with a difficult class is to imagine them all as the future 40-year-olds that they'll become, you know, with mortgages and hemorrhoids and self-doubt and everything. So you're kind of talking past that that confident 19-year-old who doesn't give a shit to the 40-year-old who maybe at some point will go, what am I doing here? You know, and they might, maybe if you do your job, remember that literature is is something they can pick up. But but Sherry and her husband, Joe, they weren't married at the time, but he was my geology teacher. And he did equally wonderful things for me, got me into college. And so uh, we're still friends. And I look back at that time with such wonder because, you know, they were busy and, and I was just a dumbass, you know, really, I had nothing to recommend me at that point, but they both took the time to see me, you know, and to give me a little special attention that that completely changed the course of my life. I want to better understand the dumbass version of yourself. No, I was, um, you know, I lived in a place called Oak Forest, which is on the south side of Chicago. And I didn't, not too many of my family members had gone to college and that wasn't really an aspiration. Uh, I was a guitar player kind of a budding right winger, actually. I was a big Ayn Rand fan. And I think really the big problem was I, I was I was arrogant. You know, I didn't, I was kind of smart and I liked to read, but I didn't have whatever that quality is that I see in my students where embarking on a, a, a long uh, career or a long mentorship, they humble themselves and they say, I don't know anything. Let me read everything. I was kind of like, yeah, all that previous history is cool, but I'm here now, so I don't have to worry about it. So I got a really late start in writing because I I think secretly I was really terrified that I would read something that I felt was beyond me and that would be the end of it. So I kind of had this unspoken program that I didn't read anybody who was still alive. Uh, I was kind of a like a, what do I call like a, a young old man. I was very superior. I had a lot of, uh, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke pot, I didn't do anything, I had a lot of judgment. Uh, so I think I was just, I, I think now I was scrambling to get to some place where nobody could judge me, you know, which means you, you have to start judging everybody else. So in the end, I was, I, I was, um, moving ahead, trying to move forward and, and, you know, go to college and all that kind of thing. Six years ago in an interview for the New York times magazine, you described your approach to literature in high school as this. I think I understood literature to be about how to live correctly rather than life. It's complicated. You you had, as you just said, this kind of purity streak in you. Do you remember an incident or a moment where, for the first time in your young adulthood, life started to get complicated? Yeah. I mean, there was a whole period when I was in college where my dad had a restaurant and it burned down. And for some reason, the insurance wasn't covering it. So it was a real, you know, a real struggle. And we had to kind of start over from nothing. And then from there, I went to Asia. And there was a moment that I always remember, which was I was uh, still kind of a little bit trying out an Ayn Rand mindset, you know, and uh, without drinking one night, it went past this hotel where they had dug out this excavation. And I'm standing there kind of buzzed. And I look down and I see some motion and I stood her a while longer and it was all these uh, really old Malaysian ladies clearing out the site by hand. They literally were carrying boulders on their shoulders to, to put them in a pile somewhere. And something in that combined with the difficulties that our family had been going through, it kind of switched the, the polarity in my brain, you know, instead of maybe this vague idea I'd had from Ayn Rand that if you were suffering, it was your problem, it was your fault, you know, something in your behavior did it. Something switched, I went, no, no, everybody's suffering. And it is, there's no 
correlation between virtue and uh, suffering or, or not suffering. It was almost like that once, you know how sometimes when a polarity switches in your brain, you find out that there's actually a lot of support for the new idea that's been there all along. And for me, it had to do mostly with Steinbeck, actually. You know, I read Steinbeck and, and I went, oh, yeah, of course, that's why socialism. You know, also when you get an idea that's a good one and you start looking at the world through that lens, you go, oh, yeah, that's right. Suddenly the data starts pouring in to support that new, that new viewpoint, you know. Didn't your love of Steinbeck start in 1977 as you were an engineering student in college and then coming back home one summer you were working in the oil fields as what you called a jug hustler, which I still don't entirely know what the hell that is. I don't either. It, it, it's, it was, we were on a geophysical cruise. So they, what you do is you, somebody puts, uh, makes a big deep hole, puts a, some dynamite down there, blows it off. And then the vibrations come up and these jugs, these little geophones are on the surface and they kind of collect the vibrational data. As you do that, you, you can figure out the, the, what the, Earth looks like beneath and where to drill for oil. So my job was I take those those jugs, which are on a big string, and just walk out into the desert for like 300 feet, planting these in the ground, and then go back and get a get another one. And it was it was a really hot summer, and the crew was made up of a bunch of pretty gnarly, scary ex-cons and stuff. And at night, I was sleeping in an RV that my parents had in their driveway, and was reading the Grapes of Wrath for the first time. And I just you know, made the connection between the life I was living where I was starting to really kind of feel like I wasn't doing very well and that somehow I didn't have any power. And and with these guys I was working with who were even worse off, connecting all of us with the people in the Grapes of Wrath. And that was maybe the first time that it ever happened where my life and the life of a book had intersected like that. And it made me feel kind of part of a, a you know, a tradition, I guess. Or Why were you in the old RV in the driveway of your parents' house in Amarillo. I think I liked the look, you know? I, did, I had a perfectly nice room inside, but I think I liked that, yeah, I'm a young writer. I'm living in an RV. And then parenthetically, in my parents' driveway. This, this is why I asked. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering, because I was like, I, I imagine there is a room inside this house. A very nice room. And yeah. you are choosing <laughs> yeah. to live in the RV. I did a lot of that kind of crap. I, I worked a lot of jobs that were... You know, I probably could have found a better one, but this one was more suited to a future writer and that kind of that kind of thing. Were you conscious of that back then? Yeah, I think I was. I, you know, it's a, kind of almost a triple consciousness. Like, um, you don't have to be in the RV, but I want to be in the RV. Someday I'll say I was in the RV, you know. <laughs> uh, but then also, you know, a lot of these things, um, like a few years later, I worked in a slaughterhouse at Iowa Beef in Emerald. And on the one level, I thought that's a cool job to have on your writerly resume, but also, I didn't have a better job and I had no money and that was the best paying job in town. And now in hindsight, it was a great inflection point to, to have been in there. So it's all those things at once, you know. Do you see your kind of early rumblings in young adulthood? Did you process events as being only worthwhile if they could later be resurfaced as material for writing? I would say yes. And my idea of what would be usable later was totally wrong, you know, <laughs> because in other words, it was like, well, this is sort of like what Hemingway might write about, you know? So yes, a hundred percent. And I'm assuming you must've done the same. <laughs> <laughs> Me? No, no, yeah. of course not. No, no, <laughs> no, yeah. no, I've lived a perfectly flawless existence. Oh, I'm um, so glad to have finally found you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very astute that you point that back at me because of course I'm asking this for myself. How much experience is lived in, genuinely lived in and not some sort of larger artistic calculation for future material that may or may not ever manifest? And how much that does to your day-to-day -day enjoyment of being alive? Yeah. That's a great point. You know, but the other thing I notice is as, as somebody who teaches a lot of young writers, everybody does that, you know, everybody does that. Everybody has the same also anxieties about how to do an ending. Everybody tries to construct a mythology for themselves. Everybody imitates somebody else for a long time and then repents of it. So I, I think you're right. There's, I look back at those years, I'm like, why were you trying to, why were you living in Amarillo, Texas, playing in a bar band, 
uh, living in an RV occasionally at your, at your discretion and trying to recast that all as a Hemingway story. It's, it's such a, it's almost like an active denial of your own reality, you know, but on, on maybe a slightly larger scale, that was my reality. You know, the denial was part of the moment. So I think what I tell my students is don't be ashamed of any of that stuff, but, but recognize it as sort of, um, coming out of your essential working energy, you know, if you, if you are someone who not like either of us, of course, sits around having a fantasy about being famous, you can do two things. You can deny it, you know, or you can go, yeah, that's weird, you know, and, and you can sort of use that energy to propel you forward. And I'm a big advocate of the second. I don't think, you know, writing any artistic, artistic pursuit is so friggin' hard. It takes so much insane doggedness, you know, that I think you have to enlist any energy that you have, any authentic energy, even if it's a little bit unholy, I think you've got to sort of tie it to the sled and let it, let it pull. And in time, I think it can become pure, you know, like at this point in my life, having really been kind of, I would say fame hungry my whole life, since I was a little kid, I remember as a little kid watching the Beatles going, oh, that's cool. Over the years, I think that desire has kind of gotten purified. I just really want to do good work now, but I wouldn't have got there without utilizing that kind of uh, dirty energy, I guess. In 2014, you said, when you're young, you think the world revolves around you and it's been waiting for you to show up. Then as you get older and you have experiences, that falls away. I'm just here and I'll be gone. Yeah, I wish. That, I, I have to revise that because I still, I still think that way. I still, I still, uh, I mean, I think that's the, that's the dilemma is we're somehow we're set up neurologically to posit ourselves as being at the center of everything and, you know, the star of every scene and, and permanent and all that. And, uh, uh, clearly it's not true, but it, the, the, you know, the notion persists in us probably for like Dar Darwinian reasons. I know that the goal is to refute that, but you know, this is how many years later and I still, that's, I still, you know, <laughs> still trapped, you know, in self that's, Works in progress. Yeah, yeah. What do you think this fascination is with men and Hemingway? Because, you know, you and I have been talking for 30 minutes. We had an hour uh, a couple days ago prepping tech. <laughs> I've been reading your writing for years. You are about as far away emotionally from Hemingway as you can be in a man. Which, by the way, is a compliment. Uh, yes, thank you. In yeah. my view. Why do you think there is this constant mythologizing of the young male writer roving in the world, the masculine, brutish, short prose, quick epigrammatic sentences. What is this fantasy? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's deadly for our country, actually. It's, it's somehow related to the gunslinger myth, I think, you know, because the idea is you're totally independent. There's no community because community is for weaklings and so on. For me, Hemingway, there were two things. The, the cheap thing was I loved his life. I loved his lifestyle. I thought that was what you did. You went and did really exotic things. You barely, you got a little wounded, but not too bad. And then you came back and everyone loved you. And then you just typed it up. That's what I thought. But the, the deeper reason is he's a really amazing writer, I think. Like that, that book in our time is, is so beautiful, you know. So if you happen to be a young person who is inclined to adventure and knows how to tell a, a bad sentence from a good one, he, he's hard to beat, you know. And I knew a lot of, in grad school, a lot of young women who were equally enthralled by the prose style. And then the tragedy is, I think as he got older, that I mean, he may have been one of the first people whom fame ate, you know, in a certain way. What I find myself with my students, just trying to get them to read that first book, because by now he's been so thoroughly debunked, maybe too thoroughly debunked. And that book, you know, it, it's beautiful. I think it really, it really holds up and it's um, pretty great. But I, but I have definitely been trying to look at the way life actually happens and feels and then hold it up against that myth and go, yeah, no, actually... You, you don't have to be that invulnerable, you know, it's, it, there's nothing to it. It's, there's no value in being that tough, you know. I can recall one moment where that mythology around being a man and a writer and a kind of renegade broke down in real time. And I want to go to that. As you mentioned, you've been teaching this course on Russian literature at Syracuse for 20 years. Before then, you were a student at the Syracuse Creative Writing Program. This is where you learned to write. But more importantly, I think, uh, it's where you fell in love with your now wife, Paula. 
You started dating in September of 1986. Three weeks later, you two were engaged. How you two accomplished this expedited engagement, I do not know, but it is impressive. Thank you. <laughs> but with that in mind, I want to think about what happens about a month or two after your engagement. Your professor and mentor, Tobias Wolf, who we've been talking about, invites you and the rest of the grad students over to his house to watch A Night of the Opera. You instead watch how Tobias was with his family, how much he adored them and took pleasure in their company. And it seems to me that seeing an accomplished writer with his family completely shattered these grand mythologies around being a man and a writer and single and treating women and family a certain way. It sure did. And, and Toby could have kicked Hemingway's ass. He, Toby was a, in the special forces, you know, so seeing this person who was certainly not sensitive because not tough, he was sensitive because tough, also was a master craftsman. And he just had this easy confidence with his kids. And I thought, well, of course you'd love your kids, you know, and of course you'd want to be forthcoming with your affection. So, yeah, I mean, he was a, such a huge role model for so many of us because he could combine all the positive aspects of somebody like Hemingway, you know, the, the attention to craft and the, the, the courage, you know, and at the same time, bring in this entirely new element of being comfortable with who you are, being to admit that sometimes you weren't perfect. Also, a, an incredible knowledge of literature that wasn't Hemingway, you know, so an equal admiration for Flaubert and Tolstoy and uh, um, Flannery O'Connor and whoever you wanted to name. So it was very, it was very liberating for a young person from a fairly limited experience to see him was like, oh, you know, I'm allowed to do this thing that I kind of feel like doing, which is to be a mensch, you know, to be a person. How do you think that evening impacted how you love people? It just permitted it. I already, I already loved them. You know, I, I, I just didn't know what to think of the fact that I love them. And so that evening said, yeah, that's right. That's what you're supposed <laughs> to do, dummy. You know, you've been doing it your whole life. So in a sense, what you're doing is you're saying there's all this ambient tenderness in all of us, really. And I think somebody like Toby says very gently, of course, you're supposed to be tender with each other people. And you're supposed, of course, you're supposed to feel things fully, you know, whereas Hemingway seemed to be saying, uh, I don't know what, I don't know why, he, but he seemed to be saying that that was a form of weakness at certain times later in his life that, that to lose is a form of weakness, you know, to be, to make a mistake, to stumble and so on. So I think that that tendency in American literature, that tough guy tendency is in my opinion, what makes a lot of it inferior to the Russians. Because in Tolstoy and Chekhov and Gogol and all these guys, you absolutely understand that losing is part of life, that basically we're losing all the time. It's an it's a uphill battle and we're losing. That's given as part of an adult sensibility. You know, The Russian writers would never say a man is somebody who has no fear. That's ridiculous. You know, They all have fear. So I think for me, Toby was maybe a, um, a permission giver to look beyond that kind of macho thing. And turns out that leads to all of the rest of literature, you know, so that's a pretty big gift. That uphill battle you're talking about, it seemed like the steepest one came in 1990 when you and Paula get married, you have two children, your dreams of creative writing are a little deferred and... Hello, hello, this is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices, anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery, and virtual reality 
for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. You start working at a company called Radian as a tech writer to make ends meet. What did that job teach you? Well, the closest thing I found to it is Terry, Terry Eagleton said, uh, capitalism destroys the, I don't remember the quote, capitalism. Do you have it? <laughs> capitalism describes the... I'm honored that at this point you would think I have it. And I may have it. I, I, you're like the repository. No, it's capitalism degrades the sensuality of the body. That's what it is. Capitalism degrades the sensuality of the body. And that's what it felt like. You know, I'm a pretty young guy with a little family and I come home and I'm just like out of energy, you know, forget about writing. I just even to sort of play with the kids takes an act of will. And, um, you know, that's such an obvious thing. And I grew up around men like that in, in Chicago, you know, people who were just beaten down by their work you know, honorably trying to, to be both a worker and a father. And I was, I'd never been on that end of it before. And, you know, combined with how incredibly dear that little family was, which is also a revelation to me. I didn't, I somehow didn't realize it. It was a real lesson, you know, it's not a given that your work permits you to be your best self, something like that, you know? So that was a big lesson. And then also when, when I was in the middle of that, to look up and think about Hemingway or Kerouac, you know, who were other heroes of mine, and just go, you know, you guys aren't relevant to me right now. I, I don't know what you were thinking, but a life of adventure on the road is actually child's play compared to this life I'm in right now where I'm riding my bike to work and, you know, and doing technical reports. And whatever moral ethical stuff is supposed to get into my stories, it clearly comes from this moment right here. You know, I mean, this is the, this is the real archetypal American moment. You describe this period as a moment where I saw the peculiar way America creeps up on you if you don't have anything. It's never rude. It's just, yes, you do have to work 14 hours. And yes, you do have to ride the bus home. You're now the father of two and you will work in that cubicle or you will be dishonored. Suddenly, the universe was laden with moral import and I could intensely feel the limits of my own power. We didn't have the money and I could see that in order for me to get this much money, I would have to work for this many more years. It was all laid out in front of me. And suddenly, absurdism wasn't an intellectual abstraction. It was actually realism. You could see the way that wealth was begetting wealth. Wealth was begetting comfort. And the cumulative effect of an absence of wealth was the erosion of grace. I agree with that guy. 30 years later... How do you see that erosion of grace in the absence of wealth 
Do you think it's grown more profound in this country? Yes, it's much worse. It's much worse on people of color and it's much worse on the young. There's an incredible unfairness uh, operative that started back, it had started back then already. Because for all of the difficulties of that life, you know, I was a, a, a white guy of moderate intelligence with a degree and I walked into a pretty easy job, not totally easy, but you know, it was a job and I had insurance and I could raise a little family in a little house that we soon owned, you know? So that was sort of a, that's the American dream. And I don't think that's happening as easily anymore. So that to me is actually the, the, at the heart of the problem we're having right now is that the, the income disparity, it takes all the oxygen out of the room and what should be a life that confers dignity on a working person is not doing that. It's just taking everything they have and then mocking them in a certain way. And that pisses people off of every, you know, every political persuasion. And so I got, you know, I got a baby dose of that back then, really, you know, uh, and, and that's maybe what a writer does is it t- takes a baby dose of something and then extrapolates it to, you know, the bigger world. How did you keep going in that moment? Well, it was beautiful. You know, it was so much fun. I mean, the, the, the kids, I would come home on the bus and the kids were so cute and they were so happy to see me and Paula was beautiful. So in other words, it wasn't a life at all without joy in it. It was a lot more than I'd ever felt before. You know, before that I was, um, I didn't really have anything to work for. You know, I just was me. It was just me and my little writerly dream, uh, <laughs> which is kind of pathetic. And then <laughs> suddenly, like really quickly, Paul and I were, um, you know, we were, we were kind of like given these treasures, which are those kids. And the world said, okay, here you go. Uh, rise to the occasion. And, you know, actually rising to the occasion is a beautiful vocation, you know? So I didn't, I didn't really find it a, a terrible experience. I found it actually, you know, to be honest, looking back, those were the richest years of my life because I was needed. And all of the hardships could be contextualized as, you know, I'm, I'm being a good person. And, and on top of that, like cherry on the, on the ice cream, I got to write every now and then. And I had that little sliver of a dream that if I did it right, I could get out of that hard slog of a working life. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second. As some of you may know, this April, Talk Easy will be turning five years old. That's a long time to be doing anything. Um, let alone doing it how we have, which is completely independent, without institutional support, benevolent benefactors, big ad deals. This is a labor of love. I mean, we couldn't do 200 plus episodes if it wasn't. And so if you like this show, if Talk Easy has meant something to you in the past five years, or perhaps since the pandemic began, here's how you can help. First and foremost, just share the show. I know it sounds silly, I know it sounds simple, but share it with a friend, share it on social media, share it with your family, share it with a stranger, share it with whomever, however, any way, every way, helps new folks find this podcast. Secondly, if you'd rather not talk to people, and I understand that too, you can still support us by purchasing one of our Talk Easy mugs, or our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz at www.talkeasypod.com slash shop. But mostly, I must admit, the way we continue to grow, the way we keep making this show, is through your support, paying it forward, passing it along, from me, to you, to someone else, someone who may also want to talk and listen, as we do here. And now, back to George Saunders. As you were finding your voice in the late 90s, I know you'd have these conversations in New York with writers like David Foster Wallace and Jonathan Franzen. What did those dialogues do for you as a young writer? Well, they were always quick, you know, in passing at a party uh, or sometimes I went to uh, do readings and you, you'll meet somebody. But the, the gist of it, at least from my point of view and my memory was fiction seemed for me, again, to be a little bit trapped by its own insistence on edginess and cynicism, which are intelligent responses to the kind of capitalist uh, trap that we talked about earlier. But 
because of the beauty that I was feeling within that trap, I felt like it wasn't sufficient somehow. It didn't, it didn't really, in my own work, I, I was, I could pretty easily disparage capitalism and, and moan and make it funny. But then what was missing from that mosaic were the moments of real uh, happiness that I had with our family, uh, for example. So I just thought, well, that's a technical deficiency. If I can't get the possibility of winning into a story, then there's something wrong with my approach. And even in these Russians, you see that there's substantial joy in the, in the stories and certainly there's joy in the telling. So that's what I, I was, I was kind of picking the brains of these writers who were more successful than I to try to say, well, are, am I right about this? You know, am, am I, am I incorrect that part of the job of literature is to be joyful as well, to have that valence. And basically, I remember each one of those writers in some way or another said, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. I, I'm struggling with that too. So it felt to me from my limited vantage point, like kind of a generational desire to make a literature with a bigger doorway, you know, that, that wasn't just kept shrinking the doorway and making us more and more of a cult, you know, that actually somebody's aunt and uncle who hadn't been to grad school could read a novel and find sustenance, you know. (laughs) That's my interpretation anyway. You write, would a reasonable person reading line four get a little jolt and go on to read line five? But this whole impulse is based on you kind of existing in this long tradition of entertainers like George Carlin or Richard Pryor trying to keep the audience engaged. 100%, very perceptive. You know, you can also often trace an artist's arc back to the first time they were stunned, you know, by somebody or something. And for me, it was music, of course, but also uh, watching Monty Python with my dad was a huge thing because he, he, you know, he's a kind of a tough guy, great sense of humor, but they, those shows would reduce him to tears. He'd be falling off the couch. They were so funny. And, you know, as a kid, you notice that your father giving it up for Monty Python. When I first started writing, I, d- I didn't really imagine that the writer had to entertain. He just had to edify, you know, he had to be the smartest guy in the room who traveled to the most places. And then there was kind of a breakthrough when I thought, oh yeah, no, all of this admiration I had for Steve Martin and Richard Pryor and George Carlin and the movie Jaws and Monty Python, that, that stuff is a hundred percent the same energy, you know, it's the same core energy of what you're trying to do, which is reach across the miles and engage the person on the other end. And same thing with that reading with Toby of Chekhov, that I felt 100% that that was, that was an entertaining thing. So w- once I said that, it just became easier because I know, I kind of know how to do that. Oh, I grew up in a house that we were always, you know, doing some form of improv. So then it became, all right, so uh, I have to entertain you. Let's think about the broadest definition possible of entertainment. And then you sort of see like t- to entertain and edify can be one thing. There really isn't a difference when you're, when you're in the realm of great art. I mean, you read War and Peace, you really want to know what happens. And also you're getting this incredible, you know, vista of the world from the point of view of Tolstoy. But inherent in that approach of entertaining is a desire to be liked. 100%. Yeah. Are you ever exhausted by that desire? <laughs> Not so far. You know, no, I mean, yeah, yes. Actually, the truth is yes. You know, there's so many things in this writing life. You learn to, as we used to say in school, titrate, you know? So there are times when you're promoting a book where your desire to be liked is working so hard that you feel enervated by it. It's not healthy, you know? So one of the blessings of that life is you can then do an experiment. You can say, what if I turn that down a little bit, you know? Or what if instead of trying to be liked, I tried to be intelligent, you know? Or instead of, like if you're in front of an audience, instead of trying to make them like you, you just adjust the goal a little bit and try to be in connection with them, you know? You know, it's like a channel of of strong water. You can redirect it a little bit. You know, I did those two big tours for the last four or five years, and it gets really costly if that water is headed in the wrong direction. If you're trying too hard to make everybody like you, you won't have anything left. Do you think this desire to be entertaining and to be liked makes you a better writer? Not necessarily, no. Sometimes it's made me a worse writer. You know, sometimes there are some things, some humor pieces I've written that were just too, they were trying too hard, you know, they were too shallow and chatty, you know. So what I see in my students too is that if you have some tendency like in a desire to be liked or whatever your sort of primary artistic motivator is, 
you're not going to be able to do much about that, but you can choose how to use it. Here's a real practical uh, example. I know that I like, let's call it attention from the world. I kind of like that. I always have since I was a little kid. All right, well, I, I could get that by tweeting 50 times a day. You know, also I could get it by writing a bunch of uh, sort of occasional pieces and humor pieces and stuff. What I found is if I just don't do that, like if I just shut that door, then that desire wells up and becomes something better, which is I want to get the world's attention for writing one beautiful story in six months. I, I think it just depends on the person, you know. It, it also, I guess, depends on how you understand the need to be liked. For me, I, I understand it as at, at its highest level, I want you and I to be in genuine connection where I'm really seeing you and really hearing you and then rising to that occasion. If I do that, I think you'll like me, but that's almost incidental. That feeling of genuine connection, I mean, that's the power of your work. And it's definitely on display in your new book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. In the prologue of this book, you present these big Russian questions like, how are we supposed to be living down here? What were we put here to accomplish? What should we value? And these philosophical questions remind me of this philosophy of yours, which you shared six years ago in the back of a bookstore in New York, sitting with my friend Max Linsky on the Long Form Podcast. And if it's all right with you, I'd like to play a clip from it. As I remember it, I think I said, Max, give me my wallet back. You have no right to that. I think, was that what? Yeah. Yes. That, that's actually not what I have, incidentally, <laughs> but it, that was a close second. Why don't we take a listen? You know, when you're saying goodbye to somebody at the airport that you love and you get all soft, you're like, oh my God, I didn't even hardly, I hardly knew you, you know, that kind of feeling. What if that's the truth? That that, that mode is the mode, that times 10, you know, maybe is the mode that we should exist in all the time. Then they, then another day you're just yourself, you know, uh, uh, there's a big gap between those two people. So uh, my regret would be uh, how much time did I spend in that regular old stupid habitual mindset of taking everything for granted as opposed to this exalted state of being super tenderized to the people you care about. And I'm guessing that, you know, uh, if there's a heaven, it's that at the airport times 10 or 20 or 1,000, you know. So I think the regret would be that you, like a lunkhead, you spent so much time in that normal state. Well, I wonder what I'm going to do today. I hope my book is selling, you know. Uh, how do I look? Oh, I'm going bald. But but instead of, that mode is habitual, but we know from the occasional foray into it that the other mode is possible. So then the speech basically says, hurry up, take my advice, hurry up, try to get into that higher state while you can. How do you do it? I don't know. I'm I'm stupid. I'm like a, a latecomer, but but there's these thousands of years of spiritual traditions that wouldn't be a bad place to start. And that guy talks fast. I, I got the slowed down version. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the 33 RPM version. What does that make you think about? I agree with that. And I'm, you know, it's kind of, after some years of living, we can all look back at our lives and realize that we have been different people at different moments. You know, the the, the moment after somebody or something you love has died, there you are and the world seems a certain way. A moment six months later when that's faded and you're deeply involved in your business concerns, the mind is working differently. It's literally a different lens through which you're seeing the world. Okay, so that's great. And then I, I guess what I was trying to say there was that I would actually, I think, I think I would prefer to be in the first state all the time. And if you could be in the first state all the time, the, the state you're in after somebody died, for example, I think you're seeing the world more accurately. Why? Because this thing we call the self has actually dropped away. And the self, the way I understand it, is the thing that you make with your thoughts, your, your conceptual uh, planning, locating mind is working to make you central to the narrative. And although that's intelligent in a Darwinian sense, it actually isn't intelligent in an ultimate sense. So when that mind is working, you're actually kind of full of shit. You, you know, you're, you're, you're wrong about, about the truth of things. When that mind recedes, which it does in a time of loss, uh, say, uh, or if you're a good meditator, it recedes then. I think I just prefer that state. That, that state is closer to uh, truth, I think, you know. But the ego and the, the conceptual mind is so incredibly strong that it's only rarely that we get into that state. 
And maybe, maybe art is one of the ways that we simulate or, or stimulate ourselves into that state briefly. And the value of it then will just be, you know, it's reminding us that such a transformation is possible. Just every couple of days, you, you listen to a piece of music, you get a little tiny glimpse of that better self. It's just like a little post-it note on your soul, you know, you could be this. There's a real sense of urgency in your worldview that I think comes across on the page. And it is in part why I wanted to have you on as we started this year, because um, you know, if 350,000 people and counting in this country, and for every horrible thing that has happened in the past year, it is some hope that I have, and I think we share this hope, that it has woken people up to this sense of urgency and something you do not know, but people listening may know, which is that I have been quoting a passage from Love Letter all throughout 2020. And if you wouldn't mind, I would love for you to read a part of it. You, you have a beautiful soul, Sam, by the way, in case you didn't know that. I, I love talking to you. You're incredible. I, I, I should have said, you can also respond to, I realize I'm talking too much. So. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Well, I mean, I guess the best I can do is we, we have to conclude that we're getting an extra dose of what's true all the time. We're, we're getting all these um, reminders of stuff that's always been true. And, and, you know, for example, when someone you love passes away, you, you get that dose of what's, you know, this is it. There's no, the, the universe actually doesn't care how you feel. The universe actually isn't designed to protect you at all. It really isn't. Um, and we're just, we're getting a, a, you know, an international reminder of that in spades. I guess my kind of working class impulse is to go, all right, I'm going to try to accept it as fast as I can so I don't end up paralyzed by it. And I'm going to try to dedicate all this incoming sorrow to truth, you know, and other, I'm going to try to let it come in and take the lesson. It's kind of like Scrooge, you know, he's, he's praise, let this lesson not be lost on me, you know, and I think that's about as far as I can go with it. I, I think, you know, we're just getting um, a sped up version of, of the normal trajectory of disaster, you know. Here's something I, I'm, I'm working on myself. Okay, I learned this through meditation, that my mind has a natural negative bent to it. Like if I go to a party, I, I always can figure out ways to kind of gently make fun of it. Even if it's a beautiful party, I can, it, my mind just inclines in that way. It's a, it's a kind of a yucky uh, tendency that I associate with growing up in the seventies in Chicago, but, but, it, but I notice it. I'm trying to work against that a little and say, wait a minute, you, that's, that's just a preset. It's just a weird preset of your mind. It's not true. You know, you could actually reset your mind to be more uh, receptive to positive phenomenon. So that's in the middle of this pandemic, I'm trying to say, well, wait a minute now, let's don't forget to notice the heroism. You know, let's not notice the small acts of decency. Let's maybe also notice our facile desire to make a big pronouncement about it. You know, people are good, people are bad. The universe is shitty, the universe is wonderful. Actually, it's sort of all those things at once, you know, which is hard, hard for us to deal with. But um, so in other words, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> which I think is a healthy thing to admit. I also have no fucking idea. But we do have this piece of writing of yours. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. These are words um, that you, in fact, wrote. Okay, I will read them. When, yeah, and this is, yeah, okay. When you reach a certain age, you see that time is all we have. By which I mean moments like those overhead geese this morning and watching your mother be born and sitting at the dining room table here waiting for the phone to ring and announce that a certain baby, you, had been born or that day when all of us hiked out at Point Lobos. Those baby deer, the extremely loud seal, your sister's scarf drifting down, down to that black briny boulder, the replacement you so generously bought her in Monterey, 
how pleased you made her with your kindness. Those things were real. That is what, that is all one gets. This other stuff is real only to the extent that it interferes with those moments. These small moments, and I say small only in that we register them as small, that is all we have. And as we leave this, I feel we would be doing a disservice to the conversation if we did not end on a small moment in your life. Or the phone rang, in fact. February of 1986. Tobias Wolf calls your parents' house in Amarillo, Texas. I don't know if you were in the house or in the RV. That doesn't matter. He leaves a message. You've been admitted to the Syracuse Creative Writing Program. You call him back, holding his book back in the world in your hands. For what seems, as you write, in chagrin memory, like 18 hours, I tell him all of my ideas about art and list all the things that have been holding me back artistic development-wise and possibly, God, yikes, ask if he ever listens to music while he writes. He's kind and patient and doesn't make me feel like an idiot. I do that myself once I hang up. Can I ask you, at, at 62, when you're looking back at that idiot, what do you think? Oh, I think he was kind of sweet, you know? I mean, th there was a time, maybe not too long ago, when, you know, remembering something like that or looking at old pictures, you kind of cringe, like, why? Why couldn't I have been cooler, you know? But then at this stage of life, you kind of, I think it's part of that process we talked about of trying to kind of disassociate from yourself a little bit. You, you just see your life as an occurrence, you know? There was this thing that came into being and if you step out of it just a little bit, it's kind of funny, you know, it's kind of weird. It has tendencies and it has habits and it has desires. And then it goes through all these things and it has a mullet and it has a Camaro. And, you know, so, somehow there's a little bit of very sweet distance there where you say, well, of course he was an idiot that day because everything before that had prepared him for that moment of idiocy, but he rebounded, you know, but it is amazing to look back at your life and see that there were critical inflection points where somebody cared enough to inflect you positively. And Toby did that. And the Limblums we mentioned earlier did that. And I guess from this end of the table, you know, you see that it could have been otherwise. A slightly less energetic Tobias Wolf might not have called me, you know, and I might have gone elsewhere. Or a slightly less energetic Limblums might have said, yeah, there's something to that kid, but for, forget it, you know. So then that kind of charges each moment with a lot of meaning because, you know, it's possible that today you could have four such moments with somebody and where you could inflect them positively or not inflect them at all or inflect them negatively. And even if you never know the outcome, that that's those small moments we're talking about, you know? So it's a kind of an act of faith to say, I hope I can get through this day in a state of mind that allows me when possible to make positive inflections, you know? That, that may be about the biggest prayer I have, you know. Well, I think you've made them during this conversation. And I want to thank you for having it with me. Well, thank you too, Sam. I, I look forward to, to buying you a drink sometime or a meal or, or an RV, if that's what it takes, whatever. I just want to let you know I'm grateful for you in this world. I'll take the drink and the meal. Okay. Right. <laughs> George Saunders, thank you very much. Really, thank you so much.
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Aaron Richards and Shauna Carlos at Random House, Max Linsky and the team at Longform, and, of course, the inimitable George Saunders. His new book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, is available wherever you do your reading. If you're more of an audiobook person, I cannot recommend this audiobook enough. It features fantastic performances from Felicia Rashad, Keith David, Glenn Close, and Nick Offerman. To learn more about George and his work, you can visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear more conversations with writers, you can find our episodes with Elizabeth Gilbert, Roxanne Gay, Claudia Rankin, Fran Lebowitz, Malcolm Gladwell, Miranda July, Jelani Cobb, Wesley Morris, and many more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. Be sure to subscribe to Talk Easy on those platforms if you haven't already. If you still happen to use iTunes, leaving us a review on there is a great way for new listeners to find our show. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop us a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, our show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's show is Joshua Siegel. Our managing editor is David Harding. Our assistant editor is Kevin Kaur. Music by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Patrice Lee, Claire Hardwick, Grace Perkins, and Caitlin Dryden. Video and graphics by Derek Gaberzak, Ethan Seneca, and Orion Wong. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back Sunday with the voice of romance himself, Mr. Johnny Mathis. Until then... My love and gratitude goes out to Christopher Plummer, who passed away at the age of 91 this week. He was an artist of unique grace and talent, and his absence will be felt. May his work live on inside each of us in the years to come. Until next week, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.